Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Slack. For companies all over the world, from the very small to the very large, Slack is where work happens. Create a team in minutes and get everyone on board. Slack gives you one manageable space in which to gather all the people you need to talk to, all the projects you need to keep tabs on, and with more than 1,000 apps seamlessly integrating with Slack, all the tools you need to get things done. Visit slack.com forward slash silicon slopes and sign up now to get $100 in credits toward a future upgrade. And now let's podcast. That's an incredible gift. First time it's been done in the NBA and really the first time it's been done in professional sports where an owner just says, look, here's a gift to the state and we're giving it to you and it's going to stay here forever. Welcome to the Silicon Slopes podcast. My name is Clint Betts. On today's show, we bring you a conversation I had with Utah Jazz President Steve Starks in front of a live audience at Silicon Slopes headquarters. Steve is one of the most respected and admired leaders in Utah, and the story of his rise is amazing. We had a lot of fun in this conversation. Here's me and Steve. Good up for Steve Starks, president of Utah Jazz and Larry H. Miller Sports. Steve, I have all sorts of questions for you, so I don't even know if we'll get to the audience questions. But let's start with you have you have this incredibly interesting background and this really fascinating story on how you got to where you are today as president of the Utah Jazz. I, I think the first time you and I talked, I was like, hey, there's a hundred senators. But there's only 32 presidents of NBA teams, 30. so it's, it's only 30. So you're you're it's a very exclusive group, far more exclusive than even being in the Senate, which you know people call the most exclusive body. So it's a fascinating position. You have the coolest job in the world. How did you get there? Good question. So born in California, working class family, great mom and dad. My dad was a cop actually in LA. Met my mom in a traffic accident, which is a kind of a cool story. He needed a witness statement. And got a phone number, and the rest is history. And so we, uh, we moved to Utah when I was a kid. I was 9 or 10 years old, and then was raised in northern Utah, um, primarily in the Ogden Valley, Huntsville, Eden area up there, if you've ever been there. Went to Weber High School, graduated in 96. I'm a proud warrior. And then went to Weber State, went on an LDS mission to Mississippi, and um, came home and graduated from Weber State. Had some great experiences when I was on campus was a student body president, was a write-in candidate, actually, for student body president at Weber State. That's another long story. And so when I graduated, I was planning to go to law school and had moved to D.C., intern in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and decided after a summer of being in D.C. that I didn't want to live in D.C. and I didn't want to go to law school. And so I came back and um, got involved with some political campaigns, ran Nolan Karras's campaign against John Huntsman, Jr. We both made it into the Republican primary we eventually lost, and then uh, John Huntsman Jr. asked if I would manage his transition team. He was the governor-elect, and so I did that. And what we did is we put together a private sector board of business leaders with the intent of helping state government improve their operations. And so there was a project that we worked on. We consolidated all the IT functions in the state, and so we went and got these great technologists. and. My role was to be the managing director of the organization, so I would call you up and say, like, look, the state needs you, so we need you to come and help for six months, and you're not going to get paid anything. 
and people agreed to it. And there was some great progress made. Utah got ranked best managed state in the country, and that's not all because of the work that we did, but a lot of it was. And, and, uh, and then at the end of that process, I went to our chairman, who was Larry Miller, and I said, it's been a great ride. I've loved it, but I'm going to go to business school. And uh, Larry said, well, why don't you come to work for me instead? I'll write you a letter of rec, but come to work for me. And so I did, and that was... Well, I want to talk about that story, that because yeah. you glossed over a pretty fascinating story on how you met Larry H. Miller. Okay. I was trying uh, to filibuster you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love this story. So dig in on that. The, the lore is it happened in an elevator. Yeah. yeah, so in the Zions Bank building, we were on our way to a meeting, and Larry and I hopped in an elevator, and, and I said, it's been a great ride, but I, I want to go to business school. And the governor's written me a letter of recommendation, and I wonder if you would. And, and Larry said, I would be glad to. And he said, but would you consider coming to work for me instead? And of course, it's Larry Miller. And I was just recently married. And I said, absolutely, this is the time of life to do something like that. And, and so we went to lunch. We set up a time to go to lunch. And we sat at lunch at Jordan Commons for three hours. And Larry told me about the history of the organization, a lot of philosophy behind the business decisions. Uh, he cried which if you knew Larry, he was emotional. And it was just a really great experience. And at the end of that lunch, I said, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I put off business school and we agreed on a certain day that I would start. And so I started on that day. He said, show up at nine o'clock on Monday morning. And so I did. And what I didn't realize is that he had told nobody in the organization that I had been hired. And so after a couple of weeks, we were in his office on a Friday. It was like at six o'clock at night. And I was like, hey, Larry, I've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks. One of the things we've not talked about yet is compensation. And so I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that topic. And um, we had a great conversation. He said, well, how much have you been making? And, and we agreed on a number. And then he said, he said this, and this is in a book that Brian Miller wrote. He said, look, this is what you're going to find out. In your career, you'll make more money than this, but you'll never be happier. He's like, what I've discovered is if you have enough money to put in savings, take your family on vacation, fix the fridge when it breaks, like that's the level of happiness that money achieves. And then everything beyond that provides opportunity but not happiness. Right. And so several years later, we have Arthur Brooks come to a conference. And he's like, look, from an economist standpoint, the annual salary that equates the most happiness is $72,000. Hmm. And I started out at $72,000. And Larry Miller had no idea that Arthur Brooks had done a, an analysis on that. And so it's just kind of an wow. interesting thing. And it's totally true. So not only did you not know your compensation, though, you also didn't know your role. Right. What was your role with, you know, when, when you got hired, you, you started on Monday, what were you doing uh, within the organization? Uh, Larry had hired, you know, a handful of people over the 20 or 30 years and he, he would call them special projects people. What I learned in the, in the company, other people called them FOLs, friend of Larry's. And so I was an FOL or spe special projects person. And so the first six months, I literally just went to meetings with Larry. And um, think Brad Pitt and meet Joe Black, if you've ever seen that movie. Think Brad Pitt. You remind me of Brad Pitt. Yeah, thank you. That's what I was going for. I had to say it twice. Uh, so I just would, I would go to meetings and I would listen to calls. And Larry was an open book. And so David Stern would call on an NBA matter, and Larry would have it on speaker. And he would just tell me to be quiet, you know, and listen. Or other people like that would call. And 
through that experience, I got to know the company and the organization. I got to know the values that were important to the Miller family. And Larry said, he said, look, over time, a, a role will emerge that will make sense, but let's not force it. And he believed in these natural flows. And he's like, there will be a natural flow, and you'll follow that, and that'll be great. And so I did. What did you learn from him? I learned that he had a beautiful mind that I couldn't replicate. He did a lot of things inside of his head. And I would always be like, well, explain what you just did. Like, how did you get from A to Z? And he couldn't always explain it. But over the years, I've looked back and I've learned some things that way. But the biggest thing I learned is that Larry was completely honest in, in business dealings. And so Larry had a philosophy that I want to do a business transaction with you. And in a decade, I want to cross you walking down the street and not have either one of us feel any level of discomfort. I want to look you in the eyes and you look me in the eyes. And we both feel really good about that. And, um, and so that was astonishing. I can literally remember a time when he was negotiating a, a purchase contract and he called up the other party and he said, I've got this red line version of the agreement back. Have you read it? He's like, there's a clause in here that I don't think it's as fair to you as maybe you would understand it to be. And so in some ways, Larry was advocating for the other party. And, and so that to me stood out to be the most important lesson I took away. Willpower, hard work, intelligence, all those things come to mind. But that integrity was the thing that I learned most from him. And so eventually a role did emerge. What was that role uh, yeah. in, in the beginning after shadowing him? A couple things happened. I went to a sports and entertainment executive management meeting at the time. And I left that meeting. And I was like, I want nothing to do with sports and entertainment. And so I went the other direction in the organization for the first seven years of my career there. So I did uh, mergers and acquisitions. And, uh, and so I was responsible for acquiring primarily automotive dealerships in the Western United States. And that was the first time that we had anybody in the company that did that. I eventually hired my replacement, a guy from Lucadia. And he came in and he does that for the organization now. He's a great person. And so I, I really enjoyed the M&A side. I enjoyed the negotiation part of that. I enjoyed getting to know the businesses and what we look for and making an acquisition. I oversaw some insurance companies that we have. We rebranded those and, and mm -hmm. uh, brought in a new management team. And then over time, I just became a guy that Greg Miller would, would put on projects that needed some extra attention. And so we had an ad agency that I was asked to go and, and kind of reboot. And we had our fan stores and Megaplex theaters and so I, I bounced around, and uniquely, I guess, nothing ever fell off. And to me, one of the great things that I learned is that you can go make something better, but if you haven't hired better people than you, then you can't have other opportunities. And so with each of these, it felt like I could get a plate spinning, and then somebody would be there to pick up that plate, keep it spinning, and keep it spinning faster. And then that freed me up to be able to go to the next project and next assignment. And, and that's what happened. It seems like Gail Miller is the greatest Utahn ever. What have you learned from her? So yesterday, I was driving to the office. It was 7.30, and Gail's husband, Kim, called. And he's like, hey, we're putting together a reception tonight for the leadership of the NAACP who's in town. And we'd love if you would come. And let's get Johnny Bryant to come as well, who's one of the assistant coaches. And so we went to Gail's house and had a reception and awesome leadership from the NAACP that was in town. And there were about 20 people. And at the end of the meeting, Gail and Kim presented the leadership 
a bronze statue of Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation and gave it to these people that she had never met before and expressed uh, how much our community uh, welcomed them, loved that they were here, and wanted them to know what we stood for as a state and a community. And to me, that symbolizes who she is and what she does. She just thinks of things that most people don't think of. And she's the perfect ambassador for, for Utah and uh, a tremendous leader in the organization and in the state. And I'm proud of her in a lot of ways because it would have been easy after Larry passed away to mail it in and just enjoy life and go travel, but she's not done that. She's become a force. And she did something incredible with the Utah Jazz recently. Was it like a year ago or so where she put the team in, inside of a trust? Can you explain that, uh, you know, and how that, what that means for the state of Utah? Yeah, so in the estate planning process for the Miller family, the family had a lot of conversations about the future of the Utah Jazz. And they ultimately decided that none of them valued the equity in the team more than the team staying in Utah. And so they came up with a device that allows Utah to retain the jazz and for the jazz to be put into what's called a legacy trust and so that it's here in perpetuity. So you put it in the trust, it stays, it survives ownership, so to speak, and there's some complexity to that. But what it means is that they're never going to sell the team for a billion dollars. It's going to stay, the value of the asset's going to stay in a trust in perpetuity. And that's an incredible gift. First time it's been done in the NBA, and really the first time it's been done in professional sports, where an owner just says, look, here's a gift to the state, and we're giving it to you, and it's going to stay here forever. It's incredible. And Gail would say this, and I've heard her, I just heard her say it last week, it's just numbers on paper. Why would we sell it? It's just numbers on paper. I want to talk about the Utah Jazz and what it means to the state of Utah, and then we'll start talking about the future of the, of the state more broadly. You are the custodian of what I think is the most important brand in the entire state, in the Utah Jazz. I think when you go outside the state, particularly when you go to other countries, Utah is known for two things. The Utah Jazz, which I think is number one, and the LDS Church, right? And I'm not ranking them in terms of... <laughs> but like what, what the state is known for is the yep. Jazz first, like when you go to China, they don't know the LDS Church, but they know the Utah Jazz, right? Yep. How often do you think about that? Do you feel that weight of the responsibility that you have as an organization in terms of like, in a lot of ways, the Jazz are an ambassador to the state of Utah? I, you and I did, a, did one of these where it was reversed. You were interviewing me last week with the chamber, and you said that Donovan Mitchell is Utah's greatest ambassador right now, and I agree with you. How often do you guys think about that, and do you feel the weight of that? By the way, I just saw a woman, when you said that whisper, he's so dang hot, too. I'm not going to point who that was, but I just saw that, so you know who you are. <laughs> um, so, so I think about it a lot. Not as hot as Brad Pitt here, though. <laughs> she didn't say that. Um, it's, it's really a stewardship. I'm glad you used that word, because you think about... The Jazz, because of what the Miller family did, is in a lot of ways it's symbolically and almost literally Utah's team. And it brings us together as a community. And it doesn't matter if you're a BYU fan or a Utah fan. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, Democrat. There's all sorts of divisive social issues. Regardless of what side you're on, on those issues, you're a Jazz fan. And when people gather in the arena, they're gathering in one to, to cheer for the team. And that's something that we take really seriously. We want to win an NBA championship. We're totally committed to, to doing everything within our power to do that. 
But until that happens, and even after it happens, what remains is the fact that this brings people together. And so we want to do it the right way. And we talk to our players about doing it the right way, on and off the court. And as an organization, we want to make you proud. And so this year, we took a, an opportunity to, I think, further establish that brand as Utah's team. We're one of three teams that represent a state. We just don't represent. We're not Portland. We're not L.A. We're not Oklahoma City. We're Utah. And so with the city jerseys this year, we wanted to celebrate the Red Rocks and Canyonlands of Southern Utah. And that, to me, became a rallying cry for this team. And, and you know, we've got a hoodie back here with that. And uh, people have really embraced it. But I think that's just people feel an ownership and a connection to the team. And we want to build on that and expand it. And we want it to become international even more than it already is. And, and so it's fun for us. You think about we have two players from Australia we have players from France and Spain and Brazil. And, and so that's really cool. That's, we, we love that. And in those home countries, there's a bunch of jazz fans. Realistically, what were your expectations coming into this season? We're pretty competitive, and so we weren't. You try to temper your expectations. What do they say? Happiness is expectations minus reality. That's why a lot of people were so happy this year with the team, because they had low expectations. And the team exceeded those, and so people were really happy. But our expectations weren't really low. You still have Rudy Gobert. Yeah. And Rudy's a force, and he's, he's going to be a force. And that controls the game in a lot of ways. And so just built on that anchor alone, we knew that Ricky Rubio was going to come in and be really good. We knew that Joe Ingles was going to continue to be good, and maybe there was another step that he could take that he eventually took. We thought Donovan Mitchell had the chance of becoming the Rookie of the Year at the beginning of the year. And we knew that he would get a chance to play. And through those minutes, he could prove that he was going to be something special, and he did. And so Jay Crowder was a great addition. Derek Favors got healthy again and contributed in a big way. Dante gave us a boost at the end of the year. And so you can keep going down the line, but it was a great, great year on it. And I think that what differentiated it from the prior year is that it feels like there's something to build on going forward, and there's less uncertainty. You don't have a free agent hanging over our head that kind of dominates the conversation like we did last offseason. What, what lessons on leadership have you learned from Quinn Snyder? It's a great question. Quinn is one of my favorite people and somebody that just on a personal level I enjoy being around the most. Quinn is one of the, the great texters the world knows. You get text, I mean, it's like, it's amazing. And so I, I like... Do you like type on an iPad? Do you messenger? And it's all from the phone. I mean, it's as good a coach as he is. Like he's a more, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And so what I love, the reason why I bring that up is because I'll get a text at 1.30 in the morning after a game. And it's just like he's laid out all his thoughts, what he saw. And it's, it's really fun to see in his mind through those experiences and th- the way that he writes. Quinn is, first of all, highly uh, intelligent, highly creative, and he is passionate, passionate about becoming great and helping our team become great. There's nobody that works harder, I'm convinced, than uh, Quinn and his staff. And so hard work, passion, intellect, Quinn is very collaborative. One of the things that our team, I believe, is known for is that when he started to say this year, the strength of the team is the team, he instills confidence. And so when you go into the game and the shot is yours, put up the shot. If you don't shoot the shot when it's there, then he's going to be more likely to pull you than if you take the shot and miss it. 
And I think that that just naturally creates an environment where guys are confident and they know. And you'll hear Quinn sometimes, like, he'll yell at Joe Ingles, like, shoot, shoot the ball. Like, we ran a play, this is our system, and now you're open and you didn't shoot it, so now there's five seconds left on the shot clock and we're going to have a lesser shot. So just shoot the shot, and we trust it. And so that, to me, is that instills confidence, right? And I think when organizations tell people, be confident, put up a shot, and not everyone's going to go in, but the process is going to be really good, and enough will go in that we're going to win more times than not. You know, so something that's always bothered me as an NBA fan is the Eastern Conference is always worse than the Western Conference. I think this Jazz team comes out of the East this year, and we're seeing that with, like, the Celtics with, like, a bunch of, like, rookies and, like, third stringers, you know, up 2-0 against the Cavs right now. Does that ever bother you? Do, do you ever think, like, hey, why don't we just pick the, the top 16 teams and, and break it down that way? No. No, we, in an NBA Board of Governors meeting, this was a topic, and we looked at all the data over the last 30 or 40 years, and it is really cyclical. It feels like we're in a long cycle right now where the East is down, uh, but it is cyclical, and the data shows that. And so we, it's out of our control. We don't worry about it. We've got to play the teams in front of us. And, um, and so that's, that's something that we, we like the challenge in a lot of ways. Houston and Golden State happen to be in our conference. And so we're going to have to, if we're going to win a championship, we're going to have to get past them, whether it's in the Western Conference Finals or whether it's in the Finals. Right. And so let's get past them earlier. Let's build a team that can do that. How has technology changed the NBA? Uh, well, so the NBA, and I, I say this about the Jazz a lot, you have obviously the sport and the players, the athletes, and that's the center of everything that takes place. But the NBA is a media company as well. And the Utah Jazz are a media company. And in media right now, as you know, that when you own content, you're king. It's all about great content. And the Jazz just happen to have world-class content. And so technology enables that content to be distributed in a variety of ways. The NBA embraces social media unlike the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see that uh, there are clips of NBA games that are coming out during the game. And the NFL is very protective of that because they want to protect their broadcast partners. And the philosophy of the NBA is, look, spread it far and wide. And people will consume the content. And so uh, we are the most social media savvy league in North America. Technology's enabled that and powered that. We are, as a sport, embracing technology and player health. And so scheduling process has become very technical. You try to minimize back-to-backs and number of time zones that you travel through. All of those things technology is having a profound impact on. Data and analytics, how you scout, how you prepare for teams, that's all data-driven. And so technology, you could say the NBA is a sporting organization. It's a media company. You could say it's a technology company. And that's how we view ourselves. At Silicon Slopes, we have to take a broad view in terms of, like, future of the state issues. Obviously, there's, like, future of the tech community and our organization and all that type of stuff. I would imagine it's the same... For you, obviously, you got to get the organization and the Utah Jazz to the spot where, uh, you know, it's competing at the highest levels. But also, I'm sure there are things you look at in the state of Utah. Like for us, it's like you know, education in, in the state and air quality and transportation and all this type of stuff. That really, you know, they're not our responsibility other than that we're citizens of the state of Utah. What are some of the clouds on the horizon that you see for the state? First and foremost, we're proud to talk to free agents about Utah. It's something that we're passionate about. 
It's, we believe it's the most beautiful NBA city. We have the most passionate fans. They're always going to be there. We have a great place to live and quality of life. It's a manageable city. Can you imagine playing in a, a large eastern city where it's going to take you 45 minutes to get from the practice facility to the arena, times that by 41 home games? It just adds wear and tear. And so we're really proud of the state and proud to be able to talk about that. Uh, traffic and our transportation system is something we have to get a, a control on. I, mean, I don't know about you, but just driving lately, you feel it. Things are taking, you know, we go somewhere, it's taking four or five minutes longer. And so we need to invest in infrastructure and transportation. We don't want to become Seattle when it becomes transportation or Austin. Um, there's other things great about those cities, but we need to stay a very manageable state. We have a corridor that's not north and south, and we need to invest. Housing. I'm chairing a, an initiative for the Chamber of Commerce talking about housing prices. And if you look over the last 30 years, on a percentage basis, our housing in Utah has climbed faster than Seattle and San Jose and San Diego. And so that's, that's really troublesome. And what that means is that people are going to be priced out. And you're seeing that. Talk to people in L.A. in the homeless crisis right now. And it's a huge problem. And so people love coming to Utah because of the affordability. And we need to keep that some way. And so cities need to make sure that their zoning and regulations are fostering higher density housing. And I know that's controversial, but there's no other way to, around it. We're going to have to have more options for people coming into the state, graduating, starting a family uh, than what we have right now. And we've got to cut out the red tape and save the builders money. And builders have to build efficiently. And, and so transportation, housing are two things I think we all should be worried about. Air quality. Uh, education, maintaining a competitive workforce, those are all investments. And nobody wants to pay taxes for those things, but you know what? They cost money. Yeah. And uh, we need, to, as a state, to have a conversation about how we fund all of those things to keep us at a competitive advantage. So you're also the new chair of the Salt Lake Chamber uh, of Commerce, and we have a partnership, meaning we as in Silicon Slopes has a partnership with, with the Salt Lake Chamber. What is the responsibility of the business community and the tech community and us kind of locking arms right now uh, on those issues, and, and what else should we be doing? Yeah, that's great. So I think that there's a tendency sometimes, and I don't know if it emanates out of Salt Lake or not. I don't want to be unfair, but there's a tendency to think about the business community and Silicon Slopes. And what we need to think about is the business community, of which Silicon Slopes is a major part of. And it's going to become an increasingly bigger part of into the future. Silicon Slopes will continue to grow north. And we need it to grow further north. Weburn Davis County need it desperately, some of the tech and innovation. And so business community has to embrace that. And I would say that to all of you and to listeners, you have to embrace the business community. We're really proud of our partnership with Vivint, and one of the reasons why Todd and Alex put their name on the arena is because they wanted to invest in their home state. And, and technology companies for some time in Utah, it was all about growth and exit and start over again. And now we're seeing companies that are growing, they're going public like yesterday with Pluralsight, but they're staying here and invest and be part of this community. And I'm so proud of the tech CEOs and the tech leaders in our state because the last five years they've done that in a huge way. And whether it's Ryan Smith on our jersey patch with Qualtrics, 
Five for the Fighter, whether it's the team at Vivint and what they've done. We use Domo products. And just, I mean, it's just a really cool thing. And so we've got to become one, and we need tech voices heard in the state. We need you to be part of conversations because this affects you. You're all recruiting engineers. And if housing affordability becomes a problem, then we lose some competitive advantage, right? So how do we be part of that conversation together? I want to talk about one of those tech CEOs you just mentioned. Uh, first time ever that was this year that there were patches on the jerseys, yeah. right? And kind of any company could bid for you know any of the different teams to kind of get their uh, logo on one of the patch patches. And, and Ryan did this deal. Ryan Smith, the CEO of Qualtrics, did this deal with with you to not put the Qualtrics logo on the Jazz jersey, yep. but Five for the Fight, which is this initiative to raise $50 million for, for cancer research in five years. Yeah. Um, it's also the official charity of, of Silicon Slopes, um, and a lot of that stuff comes through this organization as well. Walk us through those negotiations and what that was like to be in the room with yeah. like Ryan and Mike Mon. And what did, you, what did you first think when he said, hey, I want to sponsor the jersey, but we're going to put Five for the Fight Yep. on it instead so we got to know it started act, our relationship started with the naming rights of the arena oh, yeah. because a couple things that you might find interesting there's probably some marketing leaders in this room so we had a great presentation for why you should come and, and be the naming rights partner for the arena and you know the viewfinders like you click through we actually mocked up the arena and we put the, your company's logo, and you would look through it, and you would see what it looked like with your company's name up there. And so we gave each of them that. And so when Todd Peterson saw that, that Todd will tell you that that was like the first time he envisioned what Vivint would look like on the building. That got him hooked. And so we got to know Ryan through that process. And then with the jersey patch, we sent a, a variety. We were pretty selective, but a variety of Utah companies a jazz jersey with their company's logo sewn into it so that, again, they could visualize what that would look like. And because we knew Ryan, we kind of gravitated towards Qualtrics immediately. And we set some criteria. We wanted to be a Utah-based company. We wanted to have some synergy with the organization, meaning that we love the technology or performance categories. That We just felt like that was a natural fit, and Qualtrics certainly fit that criteria. And so we quickly be began engaging with Qualtrics on it and Mike and Ryan love the idea and we would have been proud to have Qualtrics on the jersey we love the Q we call Quinn Q there were some things that just made sense but when we were probably two-thirds of the way through that process in Ryan's office it may have been like a Friday night it was late it was like eight o'clock at night now Ryan's like look we we want to put our cancer research initiative which is five for the fight and we loved it and five players on the court fight for the fight. Everybody's been affected by cancer. We could rally around that. And it just fit on so many levels, our organization, what it stands for, that it was an easy sell to us. I give them full credit because that was their idea. It honestly took some convincing by us to the NBA. NBA was very skeptical of it. And it was almost like it was too good to be true. And let's vet this organization out. And are they going to ask fans for money? And where's the money going to? And and it was appropriate level of vetting, but we were able to get through that. And now I believe that we've set the standard from a partnership standpoint on what that jersey patch can be. And it was kind of a magical season, no? With, like, Ricky coming here, and he, yeah. he's really grasped uh, Five for the Fight and become a huge ambassador for that. In fact, he was on the cover of Silicon Slopes magazine specifically for that reason. Uh, 
What happened this season? I mean, what, what was the outcome? With Fight for the Fight? Yeah. Well, so a few things. One is just awareness was raised nationally. And we calculate media value of social media posts and ESPN. And so every time you're watching Donovan Mitchell dunk in the dunk contest or something like that, the media value alone is well into the millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars of just that. And then we were able to raise some money against Boston. We had a fight for the fight night, and we raised like a million dollars that night towards cancer research. And so it's the start of something special. Qualtrics has said that they want to continue it next year. They have the option every year whether to keep that as the jersey patch or to switch, and they're bringing it back, which is really cool. Huge props to them for doing that. Let's open it up. Just raise your hand and just make sure to uh, repeat the question. Yeah. So the question was, Las Vegas wants an NBA team, and if they get one, where does that come from? That's a good question. They do want one. They have an arena. I've heard that they are trying to get a second arena down there. Don't know if that's true or not. We would welcome it because think about the advantage you have if you're Brooklyn. When you're playing in your conference, you're playing the Knicks, you're playing the Celtics, you're playing the 76ers. Think about travel alone. From a travel standpoint, we would love that. I don't want to speculate on where that would come. That's unfair to the other 29 partners. It's not fair to those cities to say, well, it could be here or there. But I think that in the next five, six years, you could see some movement. And that could be because a team sells and a new ownership group wants to bring it. I think Adam Silver has been pretty clear that we're not ready for expansion yet. And so it would probably have to be a situation where an arena leases up and an owner, ownership group wants to move a team. Um, Seattle's another possibility. I would think that Seattle, Seattle and Vegas would probably be the two likely cities. That St. Louis, people forget about St. Louis, but that could be one as well. And so I'm not really answering your question, am I? It's not going to be Utah. It's not going to be Oh, No. No, Can't move. we just put $125 million into renovating an arena in Salt Lake that we need to get like 20, 30, 50 years of life out of. And so it absolutely will not be the Las Vegas Jazz. <laughs> I can promise you that. David, yeah. Let me try to summarize the question. Are the Jazz a tougher team because of Rudy Gobert? Yes. We're a better defensive team and defense travels and Rudy controls the paint in ways that aren't always seen. And so when you get into advanced stats, that's when Rudy's brilliance really shines, when you see how much he controls that end of the court. Were we as tough before? I don't know. I can tell you that it has nothing to do with Gail or Greg because there's always a commitment from the top of the type of team that we want to have, and that's a gritty, hardworking, team-oriented group. And so the composition of players, you know, people forget, and I think it's important to realize that 10 years ago we had a Western Conference Finals team, and that was a pretty tough team. It was a, it was a good team, and uh, we had to go through a rebuild. And um, rebuilds are tough in the NBA because people lose courage. Here's what I mean by that. You make a commitment to rebuild, and then you start to get emotional because there's a free agent available. And it's like, we want to play our young guys, but this guy is available. And what you've done is you've bifurcated your strategy. So are you going to go young and commit to a rebuild? Or are you going to go young and now you're going to add two vets on top of it that want to win now? And by the way, your young guys aren't playing. They're not developing. And it takes courage. When we're only winning 24 games, that's tough. But that courage to say that we're building for the future and the commitment is there, you can't skip steps. And, and that's what happened when the Millsap, Darren Williams, like that era ended. We had to commit to a full rebuild and 
And really, the Miller family committed to that. And that's, it sounds like a weird thing, but not many teams do that very successfully. But Rudy influences that. He starts off with the Nuggets about who you want to draft this year? No. In fact, somebody in our organization sent out a tweet about that, kind of joking. This was a question about the Denver Nuggets. And I said, look, be very careful. Because a couple of reasons. We don't ever want to show up a team. And secondly, we want to continue to trade with the Denver Nuggets. It worked out. I'll tell you this, there are 13 other teams that if they knew that Donovan Mitchell was going to be this good, they would have drafted him. And so it's hard to blame, but it worked out for us. And fortunately, our guys were on to him and knew that he could be really special. And there were a handful of teams behind us that were really upset when that trade happened because they thought that he had slipped to them. And so we're the beneficiary of, of Donovan Mitchell. And uh, it worked out. just happened to be the same team that made the trades for Rudy and Donovan. How was that as a diplomatic political answer? We can talk afterwards. So Spurs head coach Greg Popovich this year, when he was asked, what organization do you look to and respect the most in the NBA, he said the Utah Jazz, which, which I thought was, was high praise coming from the San Antonio Spurs and Greg Popovich. Who, who is that for you? Yeah, so I, I think there's a few model franchises. The Spurs are one of them because of the longevity, the way in which they do it. It's team-oriented. Pop is an unbelievable coach. R.C. Buford is great. Community is really strong in San Antonio. Golden State's built something really special. They don't have the sustained success that San Antonio does. Boston is doing a great job. You've got to give Boston a lot of credit for what they're building out there. Those would probably be the teams that stick out. Oklahoma City, I think Oklahoma City does it really well. Their fan base is great. It's a community that rallies around that organization. Sam Presti is the GM, has done a great job. They've been competitive for a decade straight, so they've done it the right way, too. You were much nicer. about doing it the right way, we're talking about things off the court, too. Right. You were much nicer to OKC's fan base than Russell Westbrook was to ours. What's the future look like for the Jazz? How are you feeling, and just generally for the state of Utah? Uh, I think the future's never been brighter for the Utah Jazz. I really mean that. We have some critical pieces in place that are here for multiple years at least and we have facilities we have coaching we have front office we've laid a foundation that's going to allow us to be successful hopefully for a long time and that foundation had to be laid that investment had to be made and uh, and now hopefully we can start to enjoy the fruits of it in years to come I'll tell you that the commitment and the resolve has never been stronger to win it all to hang a banner and so We've got to get that done. That's going to happen through internal improvement. It's going to happen with player development. It's going to happen as we make a key acquisition here or there. And we're going to stay together on that. And it's bright. And we can taste it. We want it to happen. We want you to be there when we have a parade. A parade here would be wild. Yes, it would be fun. We have, like, the route in our minds. So I love it. It's important. It's not being cocky, but you have to believe that. We have to visualize what that looks like. And so we do that, and we take it really seriously. Because if you don't, we're not the team that's just, we're happy to be there. We're not just happy to be there. We want to be there, and we want to compete, and we want to win it all. And uh, we're committed to doing that. Please join me in thanking Utah Jazz President Steve Starks. I want to thank Utah Jazz President Steve Starks for coming on today's show. Do not forget to get your tickets to Silicon Slopes Tech Summit 2019. It's going to be an incredible event. 
and tickets are set at a super early bird price that makes it a no-brainer. Go to siliconslopesummit.com for more details. Today's show was recorded inside the Silicon Slope studio and produced by our good friend Dave Meekum. Signing off for now, my name is Clint Betts, and this has been another episode of the Silicon Slopes podcast. Best job ever. You won't be the first person at Solution Reach to say that, not even the second. Go check them out at www.solutionreach.com forward slash careers. They're always looking to add new talent to the team, and it's a team that's truly making a difference in healthcare, better connecting patients to their providers. Not to mention the awesome new building they've got, free CrossFit and yoga classes, the whole nine yards. Visit www.solutionreach.com forward slash careers. Check out the open positions listed, and hopefully you'll join the growing list who are saying, best job ever.